You're listening to the Podcast Network. Find more great podcasts at www.thepodcastnetwork.com. Listen. Learn. Evolve. Welcome, one and all, to the amazing 21st episode of the Napoleon 101 podcast. Welcome, my esteemed co-host, Jay David Markham, back to the show. How are you, sir? Well, I'm very good, Cameron, and I hope you're doing well uh, also. Uh, it's it's hard to believe this is, <clears throat> excuse me, our 21st uh, show, and we... Haven't even got to the Battle of Wagram yet, although we'll get that in a few minutes. Uh, in celebration of tonight's show, uh, uh, I, I went to my local pharmacy and picked up a bottle of, of a 21-year-old medication uh, to, uh, to celebrate things. And so our regular listeners will, will know that, that apparently I'm uh, well on the way to recovery. <laughs> I'm sure I can speak on behalf of everybody to say we're so pleased to hear that. Now, of course, uh, in between episode number 20 and uh, tonight, we celebrated, well, if that's the right word, or commemorated, probably a better word, the uh, anniversary of Napoleon's death on the 5th of May, 1821. Do you have any special little ritual that you observe on this day? Well, I, uh, I I try to drink a toast to the emperor. There's there's it's not a day obviously that you you, you celebrate. Uh, uh, it, it's a day to to remember and, and maybe uh, contemplate a little bit about his uh, legacy and and why why he was important and and why I, for example, and and others like me and 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 you have have dedicated so much of our time and energy and effort and fortune to uh, to to celebrating his life and and to remembering him in death uh there, there's a lot of people that when you when you have the the anniversary of their death you you you, you ponder what it meant to have them alive at one time or another it's easier for me to uh to to concentrate on napoleon on the day that he died as opposed to the day uh that he was born august 15th because as i, I may have mentioned before that birth birthday is shared uh, uh, with my wife, uh, and she seems to expect somehow that I will spend more time thinking of her on August fifteenth than of the emperor. So, so, uh, but but the fifth of May, uh, other than the fact that we also have Cinco de Mayo, Mexican Independence Day, and so on, that we in America, you know, are at least aware of, uh, the fifth of May is a time for for at least some reflection on. On, on the legacy and the meaning of Napoleon's uh, life. Now, I think that they had uh, a bit of a uh, mass in Paris on the time at uh, Les Invalides, and uh, there was some notable people there. And uh, I, I asked if any of our listeners were in Paris that they might write us a report if they attended. We'd love to get some first-hand reports of, of what happened. But anyway, on with the I've show. Not, I've, never, oh, I've, I've, never, I've never been in Paris when... Uh, you know, on, on the fifth of May, uh, they do have a, a, a mass and a ceremony, and they lay a wreath, and 
and the Napoleonic Alliance, which is now the, the Napoleonic uh, Historical Society, uh, typically has had a representation there uh, to lay a wreath, and and uh, and that's 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 good. And once I retire, I'll I'll try to make it uh, there for one of those things. But but whether you're in Paris at Les Invalides or whether you're elsewhere, uh, the fact of the matter is Napoleon's legacy is is important enough that people all over the world uh, take note of it. Whether they take note of it on the fifth of May or not is irrelevant. Uh, he's a person that uh, you know you you you, you simply cannot avoid when you are thinking of those people in history who have really made a, a, a difference and a, and a very positive difference. And, and of course, that's why we are doing episode number 21, uh, because we and so many people out there uh, also uh, believe that, that Napoleon's legacy and Napoleon's life is, is something worth uh, studying, worth analyzing, and, and indeed worth celebrating. And we should uh, welcome all of the new listeners to the show. We see that the audience is getting bigger and bigger every episode, and uh, we'd like to thank everybody for the comments that they have left on the uh, last couple of episodes. Uh, we, to backtrack, uh, you know, we have now finished. We have done with the Peninsula War for the time being. Uh, we <laughs> we've dedicated several hours to the uh, unfortunate goings-on in the Iberian Peninsula. And uh, people ha will have to cast their minds back as far back as episode 18 to remember that. We, we've kind of jumped around in terms of our linear progression here where we last left Napoleon, leaving aside the Peninsula Wars, which were going on concurrently with some of this activity, was uh, the Treaty of Tilsit that he signed with Alexander, the Tsar of Russia. And oh, it's just an interesting, uh, by the by, on the title of Tsar. I'm not sure if many people will know this. And in fact, I only learned this several years ago. You, you sometimes see it spelled T-S-A-R or T-Z-A-R or C-Z-A-R. And that was a diminution of the title Caesar, wasn't it? Am I right with that piece of trivia? Sure, uh, Tsar is is a as you say it's a it's a takeoff of of uh, Caesar as in, in Julius Caesar or Augustus Caesar, uh, just like the 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 German word uh, Kaiser uh, is 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 also uh, a, a takeoff of the word Caesar or oh, the German version of the word Caesar. I didn't realize that. There you go. So you know Caesar Caesar is 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 ever with us. Uh, any number of French Empire and Napoleonic uh, symbols uh, come from the, the, uh, the Roman Empire and from the Caesars. And there's been a, I must say, a groundswell of <laughs> hope and desire uh, for this uh, podcast to, at, at, at one point, eventually uh, morph over into uh, a uh, Julius Caesar uh, show. And, and I think that we will probably do that uh, that that assumes that that we're still alive when we finally uh, finish uh, this show. I'm convinced that we will do the last show. You mentioned uh, the fifth of May is the anniversary anniversary of Napoleon's death. I'm convinced that we will do the last show on the anniversary of his death, which would be uh, 2021, uh, uh, the fifth anniversary. And that's uh, my math will no doubt fail me now, but that's a few years into the future 
uh, 14, I think. So uh, <laughs> uh, it, it would it would appear that uh, oh. uh, we're we're on on course to do just that. Come on, we're we're on we're on the downhill run now, David. And and I I must uh, correct myself. The Treaty of Tilsit episode was 17. Then we did Trafalgar. Peninsula War. We got all the bad stuff out of the way. Well, some of the bad stuff out of the way, like a dose of medicine. But as you said to me before we started recording tonight, at least we have something positive in Napoleon's favour to talk about this time. Let's move on. This is the War of the Fifth Coalition, or the Campaign of Austria in 1809 we're up to today. So... Um, what what happened between the signing of the Treaty of Tilsit in 1807 and the beginning of 1809? There's sort of 12 or 18 months of relative peace here amongst the the continental side of uh, Europe. What was Napoleon doing in that period of time? Balls, uh, writing laws, uh, what was he doing? Well, he was doing probably a little bit of, of, of all of that, but as, as our listeners will recall and our our British listeners, of course, will not consider the last two episodes or the last three episodes getting the the bad stuff out of the way. From from their point of view, I suppose it's the good stuff. But whether it's good, bad, or indifferent, uh, you you have the beginning of the peninsular uh, conflict uh, uh, taking place uh, uh, around this time. In fact, it's in 1808 that Napoleon himself goes to to uh, Spain. A good uh, chunk of his military is tied up in Spain, and uh, that, of course, at least is worth noting to, to the other powers of, of continental Europe. Uh, Austria is, first of all, being wooed by Great Britain. I know that the, 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 the British listeners don't always like to hear us say the same thing over and over again, but the, the, the reality is that Great Britain was the most constant of Napoleon's foes. Great Britain was the, the country that was most determined to see Napoleon fail and, and to see the French Revolution fail. So, so while they're sort of trying to entice uh, the, the, the Austrians into taking some kind of action, Austria although I don't think they have been all that badly treated with, with Tilsit and so forth, uh, you know, that was, uh, it was something of a, a, a thorn in their side. They weren't very happy about it, and they were beginning to have visions of regaining some of their territory in Italy and so on. And the Emperor Francis, you know, looked around and he said, well, you know, uh, I don't know that, that Russia is all that strong an ally of, of France, uh, I don't think the, uh, the, the, the German states are going to be much of a, a, an issue. Uh, Napoleon is getting bogged down in, in Spain a bit. Uh, the, the Brits are still going strong and still have lots of money, etc. So, you know, just maybe I, Emperor Francis of Austria, can lead uh, the continent in a massive uprising against this usurper, this, this terrible fellow, and uh, maybe uh, now is the time to do it. While while he is distracted, uh, the the uh, uh, Germanic tri- tribes. The, yeah, I'm back to 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 talk about Caesar. Uh, the the Germanic uh, uh, nations, uh, principalities are are not necessarily really thrilled with their their their, their French uh, 
control and so on. So there's at least a possibility of success. And, you know, delusion is a wonderful thing. And when you're an emperor of a grand old empire like Austria, it's probably pretty easy to imagine that you will will somehow manage to to win it all. And and so that's exactly what uh, Francis decides to do. He 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 betrays Napoleon. Let's make no mistake about it. He had promised Napoleon never to go to war with him again. He was an ally. Uh, and uh, by the way, he was surrounded by French allies. He had the Russians on one side and the French on the other. So, you know, it was in theory, at least a bit of a risk. Uh, nevertheless, in April of 1809, the Emperor Francis declares war on Napoleonic France and immediately goes on the move, moving into Bavaria, moving uh, toward the West, uh, trying to put immediate pressure on uh, France, and is initially fairly successful. Now, one must understand that when you do something of a surprise declaration of war, and then very, very quickly move your forces, which you've prepared, uh, against ill-prepared and, and forces that are not expecting uh, to have to defend themselves, you will have success. And, and the Austrians do have some success, uh, but but Napoleon very, very quickly moves uh, military uh, operations led by himself personally to the front. Uh, and and uh, on April 20th, they, they fight the Austrians at the Battle of Abensberg and, and they defeat them. Uh, the next day, they, they defeat them again at the Battle of Lanschut. And the day after that, they win the Battle of Ekmul. So these are three fairly well-known battles in three days, if you look at some of the French battle flags, these are these are battles uh, that are you know up there on on the flag. They're not insignificant skirmishes. They're they're significant victories, and the tide has been turned. Uh, the Austrians have lost uh, you know thirty thousand or more soldiers in three days, uh, and uh, you know you think that would be almost the end of it, but the Austrians. Are, are, are better fighters now than they were earlier, and they're more organized, and they, they do manage to to these three defeats in relatively good order. And that's something that I, I want our listeners to understand, and this is not really a, 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 a military history-dominated uh, kind of thing, but, you know, that, we are, that we're doing the podcast, but, but it's important to know a, a few things about you know, military reality. And, 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 and that is that defeats are not always uh, the same. Not all defeats are created equal. A defeat where you're routed, where your troops are scattered, uh, where many of them are taken prisoner uh, is one thing. A defeat where, yes, you lose the battle, you lose troops, but the bulk of your soldiers and perhaps your artillery park and your your, your baggage train and so on, manages to evacuate the area in good order, uh, move to where they can you know, live to fight another day. That's another kind of loss entirely. And that, to a very large extent, is the situation of, of the Austrians. Yes, the Austrians have lost three battles, significant battles. They've lost 30,000 men. 
they've no doubt lost a great deal of equipment. Their, their pride has certainly uh, been damaged. Uh, but they're, they're still organized. They're still a cohesive uh, set of units. Their main leadership academy is still intact. And uh, the, the, the reality is then that they retreat in pretty good order. On the other hand, Napoleon's troops are in even better shape because they have the, if nothing else, the great morale booster of having won three times. They are exhausted. Both armies are exhausted. Battles are not walks in the park. Battles are, are hard, hard work. And the end of a day of constant combat, you're tired. And if you get three battles in three days with the marches involved in getting to each of the successive battlefields, you're going to be exhausted. So it takes a while for the French to really, truly recover. Uh, but on the 13th of May, uh, Napoleon uh, moves into the capital city of Vienna, uh, finds that the main Austrian forces and the government are gone. Uh, and so Napoleon uh, takes over the city and sets up shop in uh, Schoenbrunn Palace, which is a, a lovely palace uh, built to be sort of a wannabe to Versailles, and then moves his forces to the island of Lobau in the Danube River. Okay, Now, Lobau was a pretty good-sized island, it's, it's right out from Vienna proper. You can easily get there today. I, I, I've spent a few hours there once. It's, it's a, very much a nature area. There's some very nice signs and some paths and, and a few little fortification kind of things. So at least there were when I was there. And I suppose it's been, you know, 12 years anyway since, since I've been there. And, and we're doing this in 2007. Uh, nevertheless, it's, it's, it's quite worth going to, and it's very historic from the standpoint of Napoleonic military history. Uh, so Napoleon moves his army onto this pretty good-sized island in the Danube, and on the 20th of May, he sends uh, Marshal Massena uh, to Aspirin and Essling, which is on the left bank uh, of the river. So he controls the right bank, which is uh, Vienna. He controls this large island. And then he controls the, the left bank, uh, the two <clears throat> small towns of Aspirin and Essling. Okay. But when he gets onto the left bank, he discovers there's almost 100,000 Austrian troops led by none other than the Archduke Charles. Now, something you need to know about the Archduke Charles. <clears throat> there are not very many people who go up against Napoleon, or go up against the French in general, that are truly a match, not for Napoleon, certainly, but for his marshals, for his army in general. The Archduke Charles is one of those. The Archduke Charles is really a, a pretty doggone good general, and someone that, that you don't want to, to take too lightly. And... Uh, so when, you know, Napoleon finds that the Archduke Charles has, you know, almost 100,000 troops sitting over there on the left bank, Napoleon has only sent over about twenty-four or 25,000, not realizing 
that there's such a huge Austrian force there. His, his uh, reconnoitering had let him down. Uh, and so he says, whoa, I better get more soldiers over there, and I better get over there yesterday. And so he immediately tries to do this. And uh, unfortunately, there's, there, there's a, a, a only one bridge that is, is, is available to get more soldiers over there. And that bridge is in a precarious uh, position. And the Austrians do something which I, I must say I, I find very, very good thinking. And, and so somebody was thinking fairly quickly. The, the bridge was somewhat shaky. So upstream, upriver, the Austrians dumped all sorts of relatively heavy, mostly wood debris into the Danube, which was flowing quite, quite strongly. The, the, the Danube, when it gets going, can, can really be pretty fierce. And this debris started pounding away at, at, the, at the bridge and made it really essentially impossible for any significant military force to get over. Uh, the bridge had been put up very quickly. <clears throat> it was not properly constructed. There were no protective devices to, to, pre to prevent this kind of strategy. Uh, and so uh, uh, it slowed the French down. On the next, the next day, Napoleon did get the bridge working properly, got some, some crews in there to repair it. Uh, and, and they got a few more soldiers over there. But the fact of the matter is the Archduke Charles had the real advantage. And, uh, and, and, and then in the afternoon of the next day, Charles attacked. Uh, and uh, the, 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 the French advance was, was, was halted. Uh, and indeed, the Austrians gained control of aspirin. Okay. So that's the situation the day after the bridge is repaired. Uh, after a while, things go back and forth. The Austrians push forward. The French push back. Uh, there's, there's really only one bridge to bring people across for reinforcements. But there's also only that same bridge to use to retreat if things get bad. And although Napoleon's got a few more troops over there, he's still badly outnumbered. He still has his back to the raging Danube with the one bridge. And after a while, it's pretty clear that neither, neither side is likely to gain a major advantage, but that gives the advantage to the Austrians. The Austrians have more people. They have greater flexibility of movement because they're not backed up against anything. They presumably could bring in more soldiers, whereas Napoleon is very, very limited with that single bridge in, in, in being able to do much of anything. And so he finally decides late in the afternoon, he says, you know, this is not going to be very good and it could be very bad. And so he says, okay, folks, back to the island. And so with some pretty good covering uh, techniques, the French are able to withdraw across this rickety bridge back onto Lobau Island. They destroy the bridge so that the Archduke is not able to do anything about pursuit. 
and the two sides settle in for the winter. Both of them are rather uh, depleted of manpower as the casualties were quite high, even though the gain for either side was limited. On the one hand, you've got the Archduke Charles with the Austrian soldiers. On the surface, they've got the better of it. They pushed Napoleon off of the right bank, and or excuse me, the left bank, and and they're in a relatively good position. Napoleon, on the other hand, has the island of Lobau, and then of course on the other side, he's he's got the capital city and all the supplies and so forth that that implies, uh, uh, and. And uh, he quickly fortifies the island, so it's pretty secure from attack. And the, the two of them settle in uh, while Napoleon uh, rests his men, and the Archduke uh, rests his. Now, there's a, there's a couple of sort of bad things, though, that we really have to point out from the standpoint of the French position. First of all, uh, there was a really tragic death from the standpoint of, of, of the French and of Napoleon personally. And that was at, at the, uh, the death of Marshal Lannes. Uh, Lannes was a good military commander, but he was also a, a good friend to Napoleon. Napoleon didn't have that many people he, he truly thought of as friends. He had lots of good military commanders, but he didn't have that many truly close friends. And Marshal Lannes was one of them. And and Napoleon was just devastated personally by Lon's loss. But the other thing, of course, beyond that, is that this is really the first time that Napoleon has to give up a field of battle. You know, you've, got, you've already had one, one major battle where Napoleon didn't do all that well, and that, of course, was Eilau. But at least at Eilau, for the bloodbath that it was, <clears throat> Napoleon technically won because Napoleon held the battlefield, literally, uh, at the end of the day. But here with Aspirin Essling, he didn't. He was in good position. He was in probably about as good a position as the Austrians, but technically he had been the one to withdraw to the island. And that news back in Paris, sent some shockwaves in some circles, got a few people's hopes up, no doubt, <clears throat> that maybe Napoleon was not invincible after all. And it probably didn't do the morale of his soldiers any good, and it most certainly did not do Napoleon's morale any good. He was having absolutely none of it, for those of you who follow American baseball, uh, and being the Yankee fan that I am, it's a bit like George Steinbrenner. The Yankees lose five or six in a row and find themselves in last place. You know, he is not amused, and he expects to do something very quickly to make up for this, <clears throat> or there's going to be real problems. And that's exactly what Napoleon has to do. Napoleon has to find a way to recover. It's not been a disaster, but it's not been good for the French either.
Are you taking a breath? I was, I was sipping my medicine and expecting you were going to jump in because I realize I have another reason why we are still, you know, only to, to this period of history on our 21st episodes is because once your esteemed colleague, Mr. Markham, gets going, there's almost no stopping him. Uh, but you also, uh, beyond your well-known uh, ability to push buttons. Uh, you also often have many very, very outstanding comments and contributions to make. And frankly, that was a pregnant pause waiting for you to jump in and make make a contribution. I was trying to give you a chance. <laughs> well, I, I appreciate it. And I'll let you sip on your medicine. I, I do have a couple of um, interesting notes that I made around this period that um, so, some are directly related to the Fifth Coalition and, and some tell stories of things going on around it. Um, you know, according to your esteemed colleague, uh, David Chandler, the late David Chandler, the um, Queen of Austria, Queen Ludovica, was one of the people primarily responsible for the initiation of uh, Austria's breaking their peace treaty with France and launching war. And, and Chandler points out that Napoleon wasn't very popular, obviously, with the female heads of Europe. You know, we've talked previously about uh, Queen Louise of Prussia, who was responsible for the battles in 1806 to a large degree. And obviously, uh, Alexander, Tsar Alexander's mother and sister, were... Uh, not fond of Napoleon and we're constantly urging him and as we will see in some of the episodes coming up over coming months played a large role in the Tsar eventually breaking the Treaty of Tilsit months, years, who knows <laughs> and, now, and now here we have uh, em the Empress Ludovica of Austria who um, according to David Chandler lent her not inconsiderable charms and talents to the task of stirring up new trouble for the Corsican upstart in inverted commas along the banks of the Grey Danube in this enterprise she received staunch support from the brilliant Prince Metternich and the persuasive Count Stadion so uh, any idea why Napoleon was so um, unpopular with the, the female heads of Europe? <laughs> well, you know, that's an interesting uh, interesting question. Uh, of course, the Tsar's mother was not a, a head of, of Europe, but she was very anti-Napoleon and didn't want Napoleon later on marrying the, the sister of the Tsar that you mentioned. Uh, a queen, uh, Queen Louisa, uh, we talked about it at some length uh, before. I know very little, in all honesty, about the Empress of Austria, and I don't really, truly know if, if David Chandler is correct in, 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 in his assessment of just how much influence she had or not. Uh, but as far as your question goes, uh, I, I don't think Napoleon was seen by these women as being legitimate. I think that the the, 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 the women, maybe more than than the men who, because they had to deal with the the the, the actual power uh, of of ruling, because it was you know largely largely a man's world when it came to this sort of thing. Uh, maybe they had to be more like Metternich, 
you know, uh, realpolitik. You know, they had to be realistic, and they had to occasionally recognize that, like it or not, Napoleon was 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 who he was. Whereas perhaps the women could be, you know, somewhat more concerned with the legitimacy of the reign and whether or not the 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 blood of 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 of, of nobility was uh, running in, in France properly or not. I mean, it's, it's hard to say. That's pure speculation. And I don't want to anyone to think that I'm in any way putting down the, the abilities of, of these women because certainly Queen Louisa was, was a very shrewd uh, political person as well and no doubt very well aware of the need to be realistic. Uh, but I think those people who, who actually have to deal with power politics uh, uh, might be a, a little bit more willing to treat with the devil if that's what seems to be the case that's that's necessary if that seems necessary and and that given the the chauvinistic nature of power uh, in Europe and in, in, in the early 19th century uh, that it might very well be that the that men were more likely to accept Napoleon as a fait accompli, whereas perhaps the women were less uh, uh, willing to accept uh, the Corsican usurper. Uh, but that's that's a question I've not given a whole lot of thought to, and it's one that you kind of dropped on me, which is fine. Uh, but I think I think it makes I think it makes a fair amount of sense. And again, without without being any kind of a put down to to, to the abilities of the women, if they if they actually truly had power, they they would be just as good at at dealing with the politics of reality as the men. But given that they didn't generally have the power, uh, they had the the option of of looking at things differently. I suppose. I um, also read in my notes. You, you mentioned the Archduke Charles before as a very uh, successful Austrian general. Now, I understand that he was the brother of the Austrian emperor, Francis II, who um, I think we, we mentioned back when we did the Battle of Austerlitz that uh, Francis was the last Holy Roman Emperor as part of the, the Treaty of Pressburg, I think it was, uh, after the Battle of Austerlitz. Napoleon forced him to uh, what do you, renounce that title. But uh, Archduke Charles, I believe, was offered the throne of Austria by Napoleon after the uh, Treaty of Pressburg in 1805, which followed the Battle of Austerlitz, which uh, Charles subsequently turned down. But Napoleon obviously had a great deal of respect for the Archduke Charles being the point of the story. And well, no question about it. I mean, and, and Napoleon, Napoleon is one of those people who recognized and appreciated excellence, recognized and appreciated talent. I mean, if, if Napoleon was anything, he was a person who promoted the concept that you should go as far as you can based on your talent. And there's no question the Archduke Charles was, was very talented. Now, and therefore would have Napoleon's uh, respect. Yeah. And speaking of talent, you mentioned the unfortunate death of Marshal Jean Lan. And uh, there was a great quote that I've always enjoyed. Napoleon once said of Lan, I found him a pygmy and left him a giant. 
<laughs> I love I love well, those that, little that, anecdotes. Yeah, and I mean that's that's classic Napoleon, I suppose. But but there's a lot of truth to that. I mean, that, the same could be said for any number of the people who who rose to great prominence during their association with uh, with Napoleon. And and you know, were were he to be able to come back and look at us, he might say, before they got interested in me. Markham and and, and, and and Cameron were were pygmies, but now they have become giants. <laughs> well, you know, I, 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 this idea of uh, the French Empire under Napoleon being a meritocracy is something that I think we, we, we should uh, be very clear about time and time again. I when I was writing um, a blog post the other day around Nap the, the commemoration of Napoleon's death, I mentioned a review of a new book on the Duke of Wellington, which has just come out. And there was a quote from that book uh, or from the review of that book that said, all the officers in Wellington's army had purchased their expensive commissions. Their promotion and higher pay depended in great part on casualties amongst the more senior ranks. And I made mention of the fact that you know, under Napoleon, France was very much a meritocracy, and certainly the military was very much a meritocracy. And I believe that uh, Marshal Lannes, who ended his life not only as a Marshal of France, but as the Duke of Montebello, was born the son of a livery stables keeper and was apprenticed to be a dyer. He had little education, but his great strength and proficiency in all manly sports caused him in 1792 to be elected sergeant major of the Battalion of Volunteers at Gur, where he joined the breaking out of war between Spain and the French Republic and obviously rose uh, through the ranks based on his performance. So very different situation, which I'm sure led to uh, a great feeling of Loyalty and, and hopefully in some of his better generals, marshals, uh, a feeling of gratitude towards Napoleon. Oh, no, no question about it. By the way, I believe he, that under Napoleon, they were referred to as marshals of the empire, not marshals of France, uh, just as a technical thing. Uh, you, you, you have a, a meritocracy developing, and it develops out of something that was sort of a a meritocracy wannabe during the French Revolution, an awful lot of of commoners, if you will, were put into positions of, of military importance, uh, largely because of, of uh, vacancies at, at the top, shall we say, thanks to the guillotine and so on. But many of those people were incompetent. What, what Napoleon was good at was recognizing those people who were truly competent, who truly had the ability, whether or not they were of noble birth or were, you know, a, a, a butcher's son, uh, didn't really matter to Napoleon. To the French Revolution, it mattered. You better be a butcher's son, whether or not you have a lot of uh, ability. Uh, but to Napoleon, what counted was ability. And if you were a, a nobleman, that was fine. Good. If you can lead and you're loyal, he wants you. If you're a butcher's son, and you can lead, and you're loyal. He wants you too, and that's uh, you know that's that served that served Napoleon quite well, and it served France well, and and it, it served uh, the future of civilization well. And you know, Marshal Lannes was one of the marshals who actually performed well for Napoleon in the uh, Peninsula Wars. He took his title, the Duke of Montebello, from 
the uh, uh, battle around Saragotha and Montebello. And uh, the way that he died was, uh, <laughs> you know, I, I think this just puts battle in those days into perspective. He uh, took a cannonball in the legs crushed both of his legs which were amputated and uh, he then died a couple of days later of uh, gangrene at Vienna but uh, you can just imagine a cannonball crushing both of your legs what that must have been like just oh wow horrific. sure it's not it's obviously not fun I if you go to the uh, Musée de l'Armée the Museum of the Army uh, at Les Invalides uh, in Paris one of the displays they have there is a as a cuirass, which is the metal breastplate. It's the 19th century uh, throwback to the uh, suit of armor from the Middle Ages. And this cuirass has a hole in it from a, a cannonball, not much bigger than your fist, you know, a little bit bigger, maybe, maybe one, one hand over a fist. You make do that and, and you've got the, about the size of this hole. Uh, well, you can imagine what it did to the to the uh, cavalrymen on on the other side of of the cuirass, and uh, possibly to the twelve behind him. Because the thing about cannonballs was that you know you may think it's an ineffective way of killing a soldier. One one cannonball to kill a soldier, as opposed to one very small musket ball. But a cannonball, if it's in airborne, could go through you know, a dozen or more soldiers before it lost velocity. And if the ground was hard and it hit the ground while it was still going, it would simply bounce back up. It could go through a few, hit the ground, bounce up, hit a few more. Uh, uh, you know, it was, it was absolutely frightening to, to have to go uh, into the, 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 the mouths of cannon, you know, firing away at you from from such distance that really there was nothing you could do about it as a soldier. You just had to keep going and, and hope that none of them had your number on them. Uh, war, war is always hell. War is always difficult for the soldiers. Uh, and, and many of our listeners are, are learning that, of course, firsthand in, in Iraq. And, and by the way, I want to mention to Rob that the, uh, one of our soldiers in Iraq, that the, the, uh, his unit, that, that the uh, collection that I've been doing at my school uh, was uh, quite successful. And if uh, I would ever get off my lazy button, get things packed up and sent, uh, you'd get a whole bunch of uh, very fine goodies uh, arriving. But uh, for those of you who don't know about it, uh, uh, one of the captains uh, from the uh, uh, forces in Iraq has been in correspondence with us and has... Uh, uh, you know, corresponded with me, and, and I was going to send some books to the library and instead decided to ask my students at my school to collect things. I'll send the books as well, of course, and, and I'm going to have probably five or six or seven boxes of goodies to send out. And I was going to read something that he, uh, that he wrote to me, uh, and I don't have that handy tonight, so I'll, I'll read it next time. All right. Um, just one other little uh, tidbit that I've got here. Well, I've got a few tidbits, but this one... One of the things that's always uh, fascinated me about Napoleon was that he was uh, a lifelong reader. And I used to love the stories about the portable library that he would take with him on campaign. 
you know, the, the way that many of the monarchs of Europe around this time are depicted, they're, they're not the sort of people you'd really want to invite around for dinner. <laughs> they were, you know, a lot of them, particularly you, you think of the, the Bourbons before and after the revolution, uh, not exactly the, the most admirable of uh, people. You, you get the impression when you read about them. But Napoleon was um, always a, a, an intellectual, liked to read, liked to study, was fascinated by history and the sciences. Here's a letter that he wrote to uh, Barbier. This is uh, from Schonbrunn in June of 1809. The letter reads, The Emperor feels every day the need of having a travelling library of historical works. His Majesty would like to make up the number of volumes in this library to 3,000, and they should all be of 18-degree size. 18, well, I guess that means, what, one-eighteenth of the normal size of a book? Like those of the dolphins. Well, no, of, 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 of a large shaded paper. That's, that's, a way, that's a way of... Uh, measuring this that's a standard size book standard size okay with uh, four to five hundred pages to the volume and printed in good ditto type on thin vellum paper the 12 size takes up too much room blah 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 blah. the 3000 volumes would be packed in 30 cases containing three rows of 33 volumes each the collection would have a general title and a consecutive system of numbering independent of the titles of the separate works it could be divided into five or six groups one chronology and universal history Two, ancient history, A, original authorities, and B, modern works. Three, history of the medieval empire, A, original authorities, and B, modern works. Four, history in general, and in particular, e.g. Voltaire's essays. Five, modern history of the European states, France, Italy, etc. The collection should include Strabo, Danville's maps of the ancient world, the Bible, and some history of the church. This is only an outline of five or six groups which would have to be examined and carefully filled up. A certain number of literary men, people of taste, would be commissioned to review these editions, correct them, and suppress everything useless in them, such as editorial notes, etc., and all quotations in Greek or Latin, keeping only the French translation. But a few Italian works, of which no translation exists, could be left in the original language. Um, so there you go. He liked to travel with a library, a, a fairly substantial library, 3,000 works with him. What, what do you think he did with those books? Obviously, do you think he read them in his downtime or were they for reference? Well, uh, yes, and, and yes. I mean, he did read them. Uh, he liked to read, and, and they were for reference. I can, I can mention again, uh, speaking of his library, on the 25th of June of 1815, when everything is, is falling apart uh, and he's desperately trying to get to america he's he's within 10 days really of uh or 15 days or 20 days i guess of of uh surrendering to the british although he doesn't know it yet he's he's having a bertier the grand marshal uh writing uh, uh monsieur antoine alexander barbier uh the librarian to the emperor in paris uh to to come up with ten thousand books and engravings uh to uh, add works on America, uh, a detailed bibliography of everything that's been printed about the emperor. The traveling library must be brought up to date. Should include books carried on each campaign, supplemented by works on the on on the United States. The Grand Library must contain a complete set of the Moniteur, the best encyclopedia, the best dictionaries. So here he is. His world is falling apart. He knows he's 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 going to beat it out of town pretty soon. And he's making sure that he's got a good library to go with him. Uh, 
later on when he's down on Rochefort, I mean, that, that, that becomes an issue. In fact, one of the delays, one of the many delays is related at least somewhat to that. So, so uh, yeah, he's, he's an intellectual. As we mentioned back when we talked about the period after the first Italian campaign and before uh, Egypt, uh, he is made a member of the Institute. He wasn't made that because he was a successful general, because he had, you know, uh, defeated uh, the Austrians in Italy and so forth. He was made that because he was considered a true intellectual. Some of the engravings that I have of Napoleon show him as an intellectual as well as a, a successful general. So, uh, yeah, no, no question about it. Uh, he creates the, the Institute of Egypt. Uh, he's the reason for modern Egyptology. Uh, he didn't just go to Egypt to, to campaign and to, to defeat a military force. He went there to learn, and he brought people who would be able to learn and to record and so forth and so on. Uh, and as a result, we have things like the Gahesh exhibition on, on Napoleon in Egypt, and we've got one coming up in Seattle uh, at the Fry Museum uh, in the fall of 2008, which will include some things from my collection and some things that were at the Dehesh exhibition in, in, in New York City this past year. So, you know, Napoleon the intellectual, Napoleon the reader, Napoleon the scholar is as much a part of who Napoleon was as Napoleon the conqueror, Napoleon the lawgiver, Napoleon the reformer, Napoleon the the believer in in uh, equality, the freer of religious uh, of, of people from religious intolerance, and so on. Uh, all these things are part of who Napoleon was, which is why those of us who celebrate his life and study his life and are fascinated by his life are not just people who like someone who goes out and kicks butt in the military operations. We are people who admire a breadth and depth of humanity exhibited by relatively few people in the course of history. Like Napoleon and George W. Bush. Yeah, whatever. <laughs> I couldn't resist uh, to draw the analogy. Um I, just... <laughs> I, I think that uh, Julius Caesar and Alexander the Great, Augustus Caesar, uh, or maybe Charlemagne, I think we can find examples of people, uh, you know, and, and again, I, I think even people who support President Bush would, would be hard-pressed to say that, that he's the equivalent of, 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 of Napoleon. Uh, I don't know any American president who would be the equivalent of Napoleon. And I've got my favorites, you know, George Washington, Abraham Lincoln, Thomas Jefferson, the two Roosevelts. Uh, these are all really outstanding uh, American presidents and, and some Democrats and some Republicans. Uh, you might add Dwight Eisenhower, you might add Bill Clinton in many respects, uh, J John Kennedy. You know, there's, take your pick, but I'm not sure any of them had the breadth and depth of, of Napoleon. And that's no put down. Many of them were outstanding examples of leadership and they were people who answered a call at a time and answered it brilliantly. And Lincoln certainly comes to mind. 
I mean, everybody, Democrat or Republican, usually is likely to put Lincoln at number number one on the list. Uh, but I wouldn't say Lincoln was a Napoleon. I wouldn't say Lincoln had the breadth and depth of intellectual ability, military ability, uh, and and so on that 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 Napoleon had. I've got another letter, um, and then I'll let you get onto Wagram. Um, this well, is... we may or may not get to Wagram here. We're <laughs> we're already push we're already pushing an hour. Well, you know, I, you said to me before we came on, "Oh, this will be a short one," and I'm determined yet again to prove you wrong. Um, well, this... I'm afraid, Cameron. I don't know how to tell you this. You have not proved me wrong in the slightest. <laughs> I, however, have proved me wrong by once again. Uh, rambling on at great length and i can only hope that our listeners find that that my rambling was somewhat instructive well we always get in trouble for not going into enough detail we always get criticized i can't believe you didn't mention this i can't believe you didn't mention that and i think we already went for an hour and 20 i mean <laughs> if we mentioned yeah, but, you know i'll tell you i don't mind that first of all for those people who who read the postings now it's mentioned to them and you and i occasionally are able you much better than i uh, to respond and, and add to that. And we sometimes get suggestions uh, that, that we'll follow through on. Uh, someone wrote to us, uh, wrote to me an email actually and said, can't believe you didn't talk about Louisiana Purchase. And I thought, you know, although I do think we sort of mentioned it in passing, you're absolutely right. And so we will do, probably when we get to the legacy, I'm planning on doing, uh, uh, a whole hour on Louisiana Purchase, and I may may go into Lewis and Clark and 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 so on. I I've done a, a lecture at uh, several venues uh, on Napoleon Jefferson and the Louisiana Purchase, and and I'll probably do something along that line uh, here because it really truly is if you're an American, especially, but also if you're a, a Mexican, uh, if you're a Spaniard. If you're British, if you're Canadian, the Louisiana Purchase had a huge influence on your nation's development as well, because it was the Louisiana Purchase that, along with the Lewis and Clark expedition, that, that largely put an end to any claims that those countries might have in the what is now the American Pacific Northwest and the, and the, the Mississippi uh, River Valley and, and the Plains states and much of the Southwest. I mean, the, the Western third or so of America uh, was greatly determined by the Louisiana Purchase. So, so these, these ideas, my point is these ideas are good. Uh, keep them coming. If we miss something or if we get something you think, you think we get it wrong, uh, or you'd like to enlighten us a little bit more, add some depth, please feel free to do that. I am always learning. Cameron is very kind to me and, and, and talks about the, the noted historian, this, that, the other thing, the esteemed Mr. Markham. And maybe I am, maybe I'm not, but, but one thing I am is always learning. I'm always looking to gain new information, new insights, and some of the postings that we get and some of the emails we get have shed light on things or given me a different perspective and have enriched my understanding of this period. And uh, to me, that makes it all worthwhile by itself. 
I, I was particularly um, joyed with some of the comments we had over the last couple of episodes from listeners in Spain and Portugal who were uh, giving mm-hmm. us their, their perspective uh, on the Peninsula War, which was fabulous. Let me get to this letter, or we're going to be here all day. This is a letter that... by the that- way, a perspective <laughs> that was somewhat different than ours. Yes, which is terrific. Uh, it's, a, right. it's a conversation about Napoleon we're having. This isn't us uh, sitting on the, the mountaintop um, making pronouncements, you know. It's a, it's a discussion. Um, That's right. A letter in, uh, again, from Sean Bruin in 1809. Napoleon writes to his brother Jerome, who at the time is King of Westphalia. Explain to people, uh, remind them where Westphalia is. You remind them. <laughs> you, you, I only say that because I know you. You've got the map right in front of you. Westphalia is 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 one of the Germanic uh, uh, principalities, of course. But you know, without looking at the map, I don't I don't want to get into trouble and say, well, it borders Baden or something. And then later I look at the map and I say, oops, I'm off four inches. So if you're going to spring a map question on me. You need to at least let me have a map first. Well, Westphalia <laughs> was part of the Confederation of the Rhine that was well, of uh, up near. It sort of sat between Holland and Prussia, or, uh, up on the and Denmark, I guess, up in the the northern part of Europe. Anyway, so well, I could have said that. I was going to try to be more specific, but go uh, ahead. That's th- good. There's um, a great. Uh, I, I love these letters that Napoleon would write to his brothers. I've read a couple before. Here's another West, one. Westphalia must be right to the to the west of Eastphalia. <laughs> yes, something like that. Uh, I have seen an army order of yours which makes you the laughing stock of Germany, Austria, and France. Have you no friend at your side to tell you a few home truths? You are a king and the emperor's brother, but those are no qualifications for war. In war, one must begin as a soldier, continue as a soldier, and end as a soldier. No ministers, no foreign attaches, no ceremonial. War means bivouacking at the head of the army, spending days and nights on horseback and marching with the advance guard to get the news otherwise one had better stay behind in the women's quarters you go to war like a persian satrap good god did i teach you such methods i who with an army of two hundred thousand men march the head of my skirmishes and do not even let champagny come with me and but leave him behind at munich or vienna what has been the result? Everyone complains of you. Kainmeyer, with his 20,000 men, despises you and your absurd pretensions. He has concealed his movements from you and fallen upon Junot. This would never have happened if you had been with your advanced guard and had given your orders from that position. Then you would have known what he was doing and could have pursued him, either along his line of retreat or by way of Bohemia. You have plenty of ambition, some intelligence, and a few good qualities, but they are spoilt by silliness and growth conceit, and you have no knowledge of the world. Meanwhile, unless an armistice has been declared, Kainmeyer will have put Juno out of action and turned upon you. Stop making a fool of yourself. Send the foreign attaches back to Cassel. Do without your procession of luggage. Carts. Cut down your dinners to one table. Go to war like any young soldier who wants to win honour and glory. Try to deserve the rank you have reached and the esteem of France and Europe who are watching everything you do. And for heaven's sake, have the sense to write and speak as becomes your rank i love it <laughs> that's very very good westphalia for the record is to the east of holland north of the bulk of the confederation of the rhine largely uh 
west and southwest of Berlin, uh, sort of in the upper portion of Central Europe. And it's, uh, it's one of the biggest of, of all the, of the uh, principalities of the Confederation. In fact, in the map of 1812, it's not even seen as part of the Confederation. It's actually its own. And I will admit I am not an expert on the politics of Westphalia, but it is a very, very centrally located and pretty doggone large uh, principality in north-central uh, Europe. And no doubt there will be people sending us posts and emails explaining to us in great detail just exactly who, what, and why Westphalia is and what an idiot Markham is for not knowing more about it. <laughs> I, I have a map. To which I plead guilty. <laughs> I have a map of uh, Europe circa February 1809 in front of me, which I will uh, put up on the post. Now, why don't you get to Wagram and then, because I've got a few more little anecdotic things to close with, but, um, you know, I'll let you do the brunt of the work first. Well, we can do that. It's, it, we're, we're at an hour plus right now, but uh, so whether or not you want to spend... Uh, time on this or whether you want to make it uh, part two next time is up to you. Nah, let's get it done, sir. <laughs> okay. Well, then fine. You know, I mean, we, we, when, when we last left Napoleon, uh, he was sitting on the island of Lobau, uh, well fortified and so on. He had no problem uh, getting back and forth uh, from Vienna. He had numerous bridges. And, of course, he's put the word out, you know, Send more help, and so help is on the way, uh, and uh, more and more people are are uh, coming in now. Now Charles, of course, is also sitting fairly pretty. Oh, I, oh, I should say this goes on until July, and by the middle of the summer, by July, Napoleon has around two hundred thousand soldiers. Now that's that's up quite a bit. You know, Napoleon's uh, force had been substantially smaller. Uh, when when he had been there for uh, Aspernesling, and and now he's up around two hundred thousand. Charles is over on the Danube, on the banks of the Danube. Now he's moved near a small town of Wagram, a little bit further north uh, than Aspern and Essling, and a little bit uh, away uh, from the river. He had withdrawn back from the river uh, somewhat, and I don't really know why he didn't pretty much camp on the river uh, in such a way as to prevent new bridges being built and so on. But for whatever reason, that's, uh, that's what he did. Napoleon, of course, has brought up engineering uh, squads and so forth, and they throw up 10 pontoon bridges. And these aren't ricky things like that single one from the winter campaign. These are serious pontoon bridges uh, and well-protected, well-built, solid. And now, and they're all coming from Lobau across to, uh, to, 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 to the other bank. And now the uh, French come pouring onto uh, the mainland. Charles is nowhere to be seen. Charles thought they would be coming from some other area and has to sort of race to get into position to, to fight the, uh, the, the, the French. 
And in spite of this, in spite of the fact that the French have the advantage of surprise and have really a very, very sizable force, the actions are fairly inconclusive. The French, on this is July 4th, by the way, American Independence Day of 1809, just for the record. Uh, <clears throat> the fighting is heavy. There's a lot of casualties. But there's really no great advantage gained by either side. And the next day, Charles <clears throat> gets up early <clears throat> and, and attacks. And he thrashes Marshal Bernadotte. I, you, you know, every time we mention Bernadotte, we're going to end up saying something bad about him. Do you see a pattern here? Uh, Bernadotte uh, doesn't do very, very well. Uh, and in fact, Napoleon, when he realizes just how poorly Bernadotte has, has, has performed, if that's the word, I don't know that we want to, you know, besought the word uh, performed by describe, using it to describe Bernadotte, uh, how he's not performed, he, he says, get off the field, just leave. He's, he, he disgraces Bernadotte. Now, whether that was a good idea or not, is questionable because this might be, you know, one of those things that later on Bernadotte remembers uh, when he <clears throat> will change sides. <clears throat> but regardless, this is it is what it is, and and so Bernadotte's gone. The French left flank is in trouble, uh, <clears throat> but as he's done before, Marshal Massena, Andre Massena, comes in and manages to 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 bring some stability to the French left and and stops the Austrians, who had been moving fairly well. Uh, on the right, uh, Marshal uh, Davout. You've got Massena on one side, Davout on the other. And, you know, which one is better? Well, that's, that's a debate for the ages. But, but they're both successful here. They're both stabilizing things on the two flanks, leading Napoleon to be able to make a massive attack uh, onto the center, okay? And eventually Napoleon is able to split the Austrian army into two parts. Now this is classic Napoleon. You split the army, your enemy's army into two parts, have just enough troops hold off one so you can descend on the other half and destroy it, envelop it and destroy it. Well, Archduke Charles is having none of that. And so he orders a general retreat. He says, I am not going to be destroyed piecemeal. He knows Napoleon's tactics. And so he, he withdraws both halves, if you will, of his army uh, in reasonably good fashion. And, you know, they're, they, they're heading away from the Danube. They're trying to get the hell out of there. And the French catch up to them. Uh, Marmont and Massena, two or three days later, near the town of Zanim. Uh, uh, Zanam, rather, I guess it would be. Sorry. No, Zanim, take it back. That's the thing about my pronunciation sometimes. It's one thing to read the stuff, it's another thing to pronounce it. So Zanim is where uh, Marmont, another old friend, like Lan of Napoleon, and Massena, Make it pretty clear to Charles that the, the jig is up. There's really not much more he can do. And so on July 12th, 
they sign an armistice. They agree to, to cease fighting. And Napoleon is, of course, delighted. He has the victory that had eluded him in the winter at Aspring Estling. He has made up for the fact that he actually had to leave the battlefield. The battle that people will remember, people in France and people in history, I suppose, too, is going to be the Battle of Wagram, which ends in a pretty doggone nice victory for Napoleon. Marmont, who was just a general at this point, uh, is immediately given his marshal's baton. And he becomes Marshal Marmont. And, you know, it's is, is not bad. I mean, he's not going to ever be among the greatest of the marshals, but he's, he's pretty loyal to Napoleon and pretty reasonably successful until you get to uh, 1814. And then things kind of go bad. Uh, at any rate, so this is, this is pretty much the end of the War of the Fifth Coalition. Not entirely. Uh, the British, I guess figuring better late than never, land about 40,000 soldiers up in the Netherlands in the campaign of uh, Walcheren, uh in, in the 29th of July. And they begin to move inland, have some success. Uh, but Bernadotte <laughs> shows up, having been disgraced uh, you know, at Wagram, Bernadotte shows up in the Netherlands. It's not very much of an action, uh, but he does successfully defeat the British, and, and uh, <clears throat> really it was disease more than the French that defeat the British. <clears throat> I just bought a, a very rare book published just after this action by someone who was there, and I haven't had a chance to read it, but what little skimming I did makes it look, you know, quite quite fascinating. Uh, and and so the British leave. And now the Austrians are defeated. The British have retreated. The morale and the fighting capacity of the Fifth Coalition is devastated. And so on October 14, 1809, the French and the Austrians signed the Treaty of Schönbrunn. Schönbrunn is the name of the palace uh, of the Habsburgs in Vienna. And uh, so the Treaty of Schönbrunn is signed. And Napoleon was a lot nicer to Austria, I think, than I would have been. You got to remember how this all started. The Emperor of Austria had promised to be forever faithful to Napoleon. And the Emperor of Austria had proven to be a liar, had betrayed his new friend, had betrayed his ally, had gone back on his promise, had cost tens of thousands of French lives, never mind tens of thousands Austrian lives, and a few British lives, and some others. And so, uh, you know, I might have been tempted to be a bit more punitive, but, but Napoleon understood he still needed a reasonably happy Francis, Emperor Francis. He still needed Austria to be reasonably happy. And so he took some land and gave it to the Grand Duchy of Warsaw. Uh, Poland had been very, very loyal, as Poland would be throughout the remainder of Napoleon's career. And so the Grand Duchy gets some territory. 
Austria goes back into the continental system, uh, <clears throat> as is often the case in these situations. Their army is reduced in size, and they have to pay some some money. But overall, it really it wasn't all that bad of a settlement for the Austrians. Uh, now, why? Number one reason. For all those people who say, oh, Napoleon's a warmonger, blah, blah, blah. What Napoleon wants more than anything is peace. Napoleon understands, I think, after Wagram, more than ever before, that he's got to have peace. That his enemies are learning his ways of fighting. His enemies' armies are getting a little bit better organized. And some of his so-called friends he really can't necessarily depend on. So, you know, he's, he's, he's beating these folks, but he's not beating them all that decisively. And his allies, with the exception of the Poles, aren't necessarily coming through in a pinch. Most particularly, Tsar Alexander. Alexander... And Napoleon were these new buddies after Tilsit. You know, Napoleon was Alexander's new friend. Oh, we're going to be loyal to each other. We're going to support you. We believe in you. Well, where were they in the campaign of the Fifth Coalition? The Poles were there, but the, the, the Russians were not. <clears throat> the Russians were nowhere to be seen. There was a little bit of an action fairly far east, which had no consequence to anything. Now, Napoleon and Alexander kept up appearances. They still wrote nice letters to each other. Uh, he gave some of some territory from Austria to, to Russia. But Napoleon understood, I think, that a, the Russian friend was not all that it could be. And uh, another reason to want peace. Your enemies are better than they used to be, and your friends are less loyal than they could be. Anyone who thinks that Napoleon truly wants more war is not paying attention and does not understand the reality of the situation. Napoleon wants peace, and that's one reason why he's relatively easy on Austria. That's one reason why he doesn't chew Alexander out, uh, but instead gives him more territory. He wants those people to be willing to accept his rule of France and of his empire, stay allied with him, and not try for further coalitions against him. If he can do that, he ultimately will win over British opposition. He won't have to defeat Britain militarily. Britain will eventually realize that if she's all alone, that's the end of it. Better settle up with Napoleon. You know, and, and that's probably to the, to the good of the British people, I might add. Uh, 
But as we all know, that's not the way it's going to work out. Uh, Napoleon has won this, this war, but there's cracks in his aura of invincibility, and there's cracks in this system of alliances that he has put together. He has the Spanish ulcer, which is going to get nothing but worse, as we already know. He has a continental system, which is not going to be nearly as successful as he would like. It's not as unsuccessful as some historians report it, but it's not particularly successful, and in fact, in many ways, hurts his own cause more than it hurts the British. And so, with the Battle of Agram, in some ways, we have the high point of Napoleon's military career. Somewhere between 1809 and 1812, historians say Napoleon's position peaked. Some make it at 1810, uh, when, as we'll get to, Napoleon marries into the Habsburgs and appears to really, truly have finally brought continental peace. Some say 1812, just before the Russian campaign, you could even go back as far as 1809 and, and, and say that that's 1809 to 1811 is probably the peak. You've got Fagram, the victory there. You've got the marriage to Marie Louise, which we'll talk about later. And you have the birth of his son. And so now there's an heir to the throne who has ties to the Habsburg as well as to the Bonaparte dynasties. You know, this is the peak. This three-year period, or two-year period, really, is the peak of Napoleon's career. So with that note, we have covered the war of the Fifth Coalition, and we've done it in less than an hour and 20, although you only have a little over a minute if you wish to add anything. <laughs> a letter from Napoleon. Uh, dated October 1809. The Institute proposes to give the Emperor the titles of Augustus and Germanicus. Augustus only fought one battle, Actium. Germanicus may have appealed to the Romans through his misfortunes, but the only famous thing he did was to write some very mediocre memoirs. I can see nothing to envy in what we know about the Roman emperors. It ought to be one of the principal endeavours of the Institute, and of men of letters generally, to show what a difference there is between their history and ours. What a terrible memory for future generations was that of Tiberius, of Caligula, of Nero, of Domitian, and of all those princes who ruled by no laws of legitimacy or rules of succession, and who, for what reasons it is needless to specify, committed so many crimes and burdened Rome with such a weight of misfortunes. The only man who distinguished himself by his character and by many illustrious deeds, and he was not an emperor, was Caesar. If the emperor desired any title, it would be that of Caesar. But the name has been dishonoured, if that is possible, by so many petty princes that it is no longer associated with the memory of the great Caesar, but with that of a mob of German princelings, as feeble as they were ignorant, not one of whom is familiar to the present generation." The Emperor's title is Emperor of the French. He does not want any name carrying alien associations, neither Augustus nor Germanicus nor Caesar. The inscriptions ought to be written in French. 
The Romans sometimes used Greek for their inscriptions, but that was only a relic of the Greek influence upon Roman arts and sciences. French is the most cultivated of all modern tongues. It is more widely spread and more exactly known than the dead languages. Nobody then wants any other language to be used for these inscriptions. <laughs> well, he has a he has a good point. Uh, I might not agree with him with uh, Augustus, although certainly in terms of actual fighting battles and so forth, he has a good point. It was it was Julius Caesar who, by far, was the the greatest of the military uh, commanders. Uh, but the emperors that he mentions, you know, Tiberius and Caligula and so on, uh, these are not people that we look back upon with great admiration and fondness. Uh, there were some some good emperors later on that he, he, he might want to be associated with, uh, uh, but uh, certainly not the ones that he mentions there. The Trajan uh, might, uh, might come to mind, Hadrian might come to mind, and by the way, uh, Hadrian in particular was a, was a, a somewhat intellectual uh, uh, emperor, uh, and uh, there were other intellectual emperors as, as, as well. Just to, just to wrap up before we uh, conclude episode 21, I would like to uh, let our listeners know that we are currently actively looking for a sponsor or sponsors for the Napoleon podcast. This uh, show goes out to over 20,000 listeners a month from all over the planet, mostly from the US, but many other countries represented as well. And obviously, they're a highly intelligent and discerning audience that... <laughs> have an interest in uh, history, in politics, in biography, in France, in, and of course in Napoleon. And if you work for a company or know of a company that might be interested in having your brand associated with this esteemed podcast, let me know. Drop me an email, Cameron at the com. Mr. Markham's due to retire in the near future. <laughs> I, I want to pay him a salary. Isn't that true? Mr. Markham seconds that motion wholeheartedly. <laughs> and <laughs> well, what... I mean, you know, that, that, that's something that I'm, I'm glad you mentioned, and, and, and I, I want to add my voice to that too. Uh, we are delighted to do this and, and will continue to do this. Uh, but obviously, from Cameron's uh, point of view and, and from mine as well, uh, there comes a time when when one does hope that someone will see the value in being associated with a, 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 an effort, an endeavor like that which we are producing. Uh, Cameron particularly has expenses with, with the equipment and the software and so forth and the facilities and everything. And, and even, even those of us like myself who, who are happy to talk about Napoleon uh, at, at great length uh, in any format, uh, just like I'm happy to write my books. And if I make money from my books, fine. If I don't, fine. But it's a little more fine if I do. You know? so, so please do. If you've got a company out there, join in. Make it more uh, possible for us to, uh, to continue. Because I'll tell you, the money that I get will just go into my research, uh, buying documents, paying for translations, and all that kind of stuff, which will help further knowledge of this very, very important uh, 
period in history. And, you know, I think as an incentive, uh, if we had sponsors of the show, we would might we might even be able to produce more shows more often. And, we, you know, the uh, promised, much, much promised shows on Caesar and Alexander would probably be forthcoming faster. I've also suggested to David that at some point in the next couple of years, I'd like to take him over to Europe and we will produce a video version of this series with David and I on location. <laughs> when we talk about all of this stuff. So I think that would be a lot of fun and, and we would love to produce it for you and share it with you. So that's all we shall say on the matter. Cameron at the Podcast Network, if you'd like to make an inquiry, we do have sponsors for other podcasts on TPN. So we've got a system that works very well and uh, we'd like to start introducing that. I hope nobody will mind if the occasional advertisement for relevant products and services starts turning up in these shows. I promise that we won't overload them with ads but the occasional ad here or there, perhaps. Now, Mr. Markham, thank you so much for joining us again, and we will record episode 22, hopefully in the not-too-distant future, correct? Well, well, we'll try to do it soon. Uh, at the end of this month, and this is, again, uh, we're, we're today is the, the 9th of May of 2007. Uh, at the end of the month, I believe it's the 29th, although I'll be gone for a week, uh, there's a Napoleonic conference in Tel Aviv, Israel, at, at Tel Aviv University. Uh, if you are going to be able to get into Tel Aviv uh, for that Thursday, the 29th, uh, and would like to attend, there's a, a series of, of uh, papers being presented, including one by yours truly. Uh, send me an email, and I will be happy to send you specific information on the conference. Uh, it's organized by... Uh, my my dear friend uh, Mordecai Gihon uh, from the university. Uh, uh, Israel's a, a wonderful place for Napoleonic history because, of course, Napoleon uh, spent time uh, uh, in his campaign in, in the Holy Land. And a few years ago, the International Napoleonic Society did a did a big congress there, and we uh, went around, and Mordecai showed us all of these really fascinating places, you know, the very famous uh, Japa, uh, Acre, the Siege of Acre, the Battle of Matabor, and all that, plus all of the ancient history that's there from, from uh, all three major religions and, 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 and so on. I mean, it's a fascinating place to visit, and my wife and I will be there for a few days, and so we might try to get one uh, more episode in before we go, uh, and then my next conference, and I'll, again, uh, invite anyone who's going to be in northern Poland in the first week of July uh, or could get to northern Poland in the first week of July at Slupska, which is not too far from Gdansk, not too far from Berlin. Uh, give me an email and I'll be glad to send you information. Indeed, if you'd like to present a paper, there's still positions available. Or if you'd just like to come and meet me, meet a number of other top scholars uh, like John Gallagher, uh, uh, author of the Iron Marshal, uh, and so on, who will be there, uh, the story of Davu, Nicholas Davu, the Marshal. Uh, you know, this will be another wonderful opportunity for those people who are in the vicinity to come and participate or at least listen in and meet some of these folks. I'd love to see any and all of you at either of these conferences. My website will soon have information on them uh, as well. So thank you very much, Cameron, and we'll see you all next time.